0: Please remain standing and turn with me, if you will, first to John chapter 2. We're going to read just a couple of verses there. If you're using one of the church's Bibles, you'll find that on page 887. If you're able to stick a finger in uh, Psalm 74, that will be our main passage this morning. John chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. Beloved saints, this is God's word, and he has given it to us that we might through it know him. So please give your attention to the reading of it. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And now turn with me, if you will, to uh, Psalm 74. If you're using one of the pew Bibles, you'll find that on page uh, 486. We'll start just with the first 11 verses at this point, and then we'll read more as we continue this morning. Again, this is God's word. A mascal of Asaph. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They have set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees, And all its carved wood they broke down with hatches and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Sends the reading of God's word at this point. Let us pray that God would be pleased to meet us in it and speak to us through it. Your word, O Lord, is a lamp to our feet. It is our guide through the dark, it is our wisdom, it is our truth that we follow each day. Your word is sweeter than honey and yet sharper than swords. It is healing, it is justice, and you have given it to us to obey. And your word is our understanding of grace and peace and love, and that's the reason we draw near to it. Speak to us through it, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We tend to like spontaneity, don't we? We like the unexpected, we like the surprise, the the breaking out of the doldrums. But spontaneity is different than chaos. Chaos is unexpected, but it is unpleasantly so. Chaos is unpredictable, and chaos is total disorder and confusion. So spontaneity excites us. Chaos terrifies us. Because in chaos, there's no sense of stability. There's no sense of safety. In the 1960s, um, there was a comedy TV show called Get Smart. And the good guys were named control, and the bad guys were named chaos. And I think the reason we resonate with that, the reason we get it. Is because in the deep in the human soul is this sense, this desire, this need for, for order and balance and structure. Every good parent, every good teacher knows that that a child might fight against order in routine, but they also crave it. It gives them a sense of security and, and safety, and you take that away and, 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 and things fall apart, and... They, they cry, they argue, they rebel because we need structure. It's just how we're made. Some of the most uh, ancient accounts, the pagan accounts of creation, uh, even personify chaos as this great sea monster that has to be conquered and subdued. But of course, that's actually not far from the true account of creation. When God first made the world, it was formless. It was void. It was disordered and crying out for for, for structuring and order and form. And God's creative work uh, is given in large part to setting boundaries between the sky and the sea and the sea and the land. Even when he creates the sun and the moon, besides their purpose being to give light, we're told that their purpose is to rule over the day and the night and to govern Uh, Seasons and days and weeks and years, everything ordered, structured, repeating, predictable. That's how we like it. Spontaneity is fun. Excitement is good within the right boundaries. Because uncertainty is terrifying. But sometimes life is uncertain. No matter how hard we try, we can't avoid the chaos. We struggle to make sense out of what's going on, and what then? That's what Psalm 74 is about. It it struggles with that feeling of chaos in the midst of exile, and it looks back to creation and to redemption as touchstones reminders of of how God works in order that we might find hope and find comfort in the midst of that feeling of chaos. What we'll see is that God's way of victory is always through apparent defeat. In fact, if I could sum up Psalm 74 in one sentence, it would be something like this. In the midst of dark times, it's important to remember that God's greatest works are always preceded by the greatest darkness. And to see this, we want to first uh, see the question God's people ask when life goes sideways. What are they asking? What's going on? And then second, we want to look at creation and redemption in order to, re- to remember how God works. And then finally, we want to see how all this helps us to understand and have hopes hope in the midst of uh, the chaos of life. So that's what we want to do. Uh, I know it's been a few weeks uh, since I've been in the pulpit, and we looked at Psalm 73. Uh, it's probably a faint and distant memory at this point, so I'll just review a little bit. It started, as so many Psalms do, struggling to make sense out of reality. Specifically, uh, it looked at how uh, the wicked were prospering, and try it tries to figure out how following God makes any sense. If it's the wicked who get rich and successful and... and the righteous who suffer so much, what's the point? And do you remember when everything finally made sense? It's when the psalmist enters into the temple and is able to remember that there's a reality that can't be seen. And as as he essentially peels back the veil between heaven and earth and sees the angels and sees the Lord, he remembers, wait a second. Things will not always be as they are now. The wicked will one day stand before their Creator and they will give an account. You see, the temple was the center of religious life for Israel. It was God's house where He met with His people and it was the center of their universe. And it was what helped them to see the world clearly. Go to the temple. Go to the temple. Go to the temple. But what do we find in Psalm 74? The temple's been destroyed. What was the psalm of salvation in Psalm 73 is in ruins in Psalm 74. It's been knocked down. It's been set on fire. It's been defiled. It's been profaned. All this took place in 587 B.C. when Babylon conquered the southern kingdom of Judah, carried away its treasures, destroyed its temple, and carried those southern tribes into exile. Their riches were plundered, the temple was uh, desecrated and then demolished, and that former glory of God's people became a faint and distant memory. But here's the thing. The people knew that they had no one to blame but themselves. You see, they're in exile because they were pursuing other gods, because they indulged in their lust, because they turned away from God. Eventually, God's patience ran out, and he gave them over to their desires, to their own strength. To the false gods in whom they had placed their hopes. He removed his protective hand and he allowed Babylon to come in and plunder his people. Their situation is a direct result of God allowing them to have their own way and trust in their own strength. They've brought this on themselves. And really God was left with no choice because as they gave in to their sinful lusts, they defiled God's land, they defiled the house where his name dwelt. And so to guard his honor, to, to protect his name, he had to destroy the temple that had become a den of thieves because of their sin. God was not surprised by the destruction of the temple. He orchestrated it. That's how bad their sin was. That's the extent he's willing to go to to defend his own name, his own honor. And so the people know that they can't claim innocence. They can't appeal to God's justice as in other Psalms. And so what do they do? What are they left with? There's a word in verse 9 that's a bit tough to translate. It's the word translated sign. It doesn't mean like a sign on the wall. It's the same word that God used for the mark he gave to Cain in Genesis 4. It's the same word with which he described the rainbow in Genesis 9 or circumcision in Genesis 17. These were particular kinds of signs. They were visible reminders of God's promises. They were visible and tangible oaths that God had made. Like signing a contract, swearing that he will not change his mind. They, these signs were there to remind the recipients of what God had promised and that he could not go back on his promises. God has always attached signs to those promises And this becomes the substance of their prayers. Since the people can't plead on the basis of how good they are, they have to to plead on the basis of how good God is. The constant refrain in our psalm is, is what the Babylonians have done to God's house, to his name. How can they that have scoffed at God and risen up against him go unanswered? If not for our goodness, Lord, answer them for your goodness, because you're good. Israel's hope, their confidence, is that God will not allow these attacks on his honor to go unanswered. God will not allow his house to remain destroyed. That he will restore, he will rebuild what he has caused to be brought low, including, verse 2, his people. We're your people. We might be a mess, but we're yours. (laughs) What a great prayer. Because their hope is in who God is, they take some time to rehearse history and to establish his character, and that's what we find in verses 12 through 17. So let's read that. Yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monster on the waters. You crushed the heads of a leviathan, and you gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth you have made summer and winter. Uh, This language, I'm sure you can hear, is full of echoes from creation, especially that language of establishing the heavenly lights, the sun, and the boundaries on the earth and the seasons and their course in verses 16 and 17. Uh, Before uh, God created the sun and the moon and the stars, there was absolute darkness covering the earth. But even the language of dividing the seas and conquering the monsters has echoes of creation. The waters that once covered the face of the earth were divided. The dry land emerged. The animals were all placed on it and then placed in subjection to man, the capstone of God's creation. Because in all of God's creation, what does he bring? He brings order, structure, rule. And it's this that that gives God's people confidence that he will not allow the present chaos to continue forever. Because that's not who God is. Those who are trampling his house, his creation, will be called to give an account. But there's more. The imagery in our psalm is also meant to invoke the greatest act of deliverance in Israel's history, the exodus out of Egypt. Over a thousand years before uh, this psalm was written, The Jews were on top of the world. Uh, Abraham's great-grandson Joseph uh, had been tricked by his brothers, sold into slavery in Egypt, but but the Lord had been faithful and raised him up into power and command. Uh, And Egypt was the most powerful nation on the earth, and, and Joseph was second in command. In a time of famine, Egypt had an abundance thanks to Joseph. And his family found refuge and and rescue as they came down and then were given the choicest of the land to occupy and to farm. But eventually they became so prosperous, so great in number, that they were seen as a threat. And so the kings of Egypt enslaved them and forced them into hard labor. They were far from home, in exile, in slavery, that past glory in the days of Joseph a faint and distant memory but they cried out uh, to God they asked him to remember his promises and to ask uh, that he would care for and prosper his children and for his own name's sake he answered and he delivered because he had promised Abraham and Isaac and Joseph that he would care for their descendants if he didn't He'd be a liar, and God can't lie. So he cared for them, he delivered them. And that that sea monster, Leviathan, in verses 13 and 14 of our psalm, is a name given in the Bible to a dragon figure who has a scaly uh, skin, that's like armor, and it breathes fire. You can read about that in Job 41, Isaiah 27. He lives in the sea, has many heads, and he is the great enemy of God's people. Now what's interesting is Isaiah and Ezekiel call Egypt a dragon because of how Egypt treated God's people. Dividing the sea and crushing the dragon is is really this poetic way of describing what God did to Pharaoh and his army when God led Israel safely through the Red Sea on dry ground and then swallowed up the Egyptians as the sea came back together. That was how he set all things right and conquered the chaos that Israel was in. But of course, there's another dragon in the Bible, isn't there, whose head must be crushed. It's another name for Satan, who who came into God's garden as a serpent in Genesis 3 to wreak havoc on God's order, God's structure. He sought to turn everything on its head. He tried to throw God's beautiful creation into total chaos and disarray. And he succeeded to a point. God's garden, or as Ezekiel calls it, God's sanctuary or temple, was lost. But God promised even then that that would not be the end of the story. A day would come when he would send a male child to destroy that serpent, the dragon, once and for all. He would crush the serpent's head. But God tells us that first he would suffer an injury of his own. Victory would be preceded by apparent defeat. That male child came. His name was Jesus Christ. He confounded everyone because he constantly warned them that he came to suffer and die. And that's not what God's people wanted to hear. But it is what God said would happen starting in Genesis 3. In John 2, he said it this way. Destroy this temple... And in three days, I will raise it up. And John goes on to tell us that he was talking about his body and prophesying his death. You see, he was there to conquer the serpent and break the hold he had on God's people. They had listened to the serpent's words and followed his lies. They had sinned against God And they had defiled his name. If he was going to buy them back, he would have to pay the debt they owed. He would have to suffer and die the death they deserved. He would have to let the temple of his body first be burned to the ground. That's what God meant when he said that the heel of this male child would be crushed before he crushed the serpent's head. He would suffer apparent defeat before he won his ultimate victory. The temple, his body, would have to be destroyed and then rebuilt in the resurrection from the dead on the third day. That's how God works. His greatest works are always preceded by the greatest darkness. Apparent defeat always precedes ultimate victory. That's how God has always worked and will always continue to work because that's who he is. And that is the only reality that can give comfort to us when we're staring at fallen temples. The same God who spoke in light into the darkness, order into chaos can rescue us. The, the same God who rescued Israel from four centuries of slavery and crushed Pharaoh and his army can rescue us. He alone can conquer the great dragon, the serpent of old. So, how does this comfort you today? You've never known a physical temple, nor do you expect one to be rebuilt. Most of you, presumably, are American citizens living in the land of your birth. You're free. You've never known slavery. And it would be easy to think that this psalm could really be encouraging for someone else. But that would be to miss the reality that if you are a child of heaven, you are in exile. It would fail to admit that daily your sin treats you like a slave, making you do things you wish you could be free from. It would be to dismiss or ignore the chaos that seems to reign in your life. That might be your job. The constant stress of wondering whether you will still have an income this time next year. It may be your family just trying to make sense out of what their place in your life is, why those whom you love the most cause you the most pain, wishing that your, your parents' hold on you wasn't so strong, or worse, wondering why you can't stop hurting those you love. Or it could be your life plans that are in chaos. You're nowhere near where you thought you would be at this point. And you can't see a clear way forward. And now you're beginning to wonder if there's any hope for the future. Or maybe it's just your body. It's failing you far sooner than you expected. You thought you'd have more time. You hoped you'd be able to enjoy retirement, but now you're hoping to hold on just a bit longer. You're not hiking or exploring the woods. You're just trying to get out of bed and make it through the day. But the greatest Chaos is always less tangible, isn't it? You fail to resist the lies of the serpent. The dragon rears his ugly head and you bow your knee again. You resist but to no avail and you, you turn on the God who has shown you nothing but love and grace and truth. You do what you swore you would never do, and it just doesn't make sense. You know it's irrational, and you feel like half the time you're a passive observer in your own life. You wonder who's in the driver's seat. You stare at fallen temples, and you, you wonder what the future holds. It's then that you need to remember the character of God and the promises he has made. See, if we're not careful, Psalm 73 can make us think that what we need is a a physical temple that we could touch and enter into and look around. But what we need is not the temple of God. We need the God of the temple. And he is ours regardless of whether or not we have a physical building to come to that not even death can keep us from him. He is the God who created everything out of nothing. He is the God who delivered Israel from the strongest army and nation on earth. He is the one who submitted to death only to rise again on the third day. Nothing can stop him from keeping his promises. And what has he promised? Oh, things like Joshua 1.5, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Or John 6, 39, This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Or Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Or Revelation 20, verse 6, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. What he has not promised is that your life will be free of hardship. In fact, he has said things like this. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Or Acts 14, he said, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. In the midst of dark times, it's important to remember that God's greatest works are always preceded by the greatest darkness. Let's read the last few verses of this psalm, verses 18 through 23. Remember this, O Yahweh, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant. For the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence let not the downtrodden turn back in shame let the poor and needy praise your name o rise o god defend your cause remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day do not forget the clamor of your foes the uproar of those who rise against you which goes up continually these promises that we've heard in god's word form the basis of our prayers in the midst of chaos verses 18 through 23 are simply prayers for God to remember his covenant, his promises they're praying that God would remain consistent and bring something glorious out of that which is dark, ugly and chaotic they're asking God to vindicate his own name knowing full well that he will You see, when your hope is based on God's character and not your own, you can't fail. God loves attaching visible signs to his promises. Signs are meant to remind us that he doesn't forget. He did that with the rainbow in the flood. He did that with circumcision. He does it with baptism. And he does it with the Lord's Supper. The bread and the wine are constant reminders to us of the death of Jesus. He doesn't want us to forget that before Jesus conquered sin and death, he suffered apparent defeat. Before the serpent's head was crushed, our Lord's heel was. But the Lord's Supper says more than this, doesn't it? Why do we use bread and wine? Why don't we visit the grave? Touch the bones. Because we don't have Jesus' physical body. Because his grave is empty. Because God raises temples. He conquered death. His death was not the end of the story because we serve a risen Lord. And that is our greatest comfort. The sunrise on Sunday was so beautiful and glorious because Friday was so dark. That's how God works. And so when your life is dark and chaotic, remember God's greatest works are always preceded by the greatest darkness. I'd like to ask Pastor Brian and Tim to come forward that we might receive God's sign, that we might remember his promises Are always kept. Let's pray. Our Redeemer and our Creator, you who brought form out of the formless, you who conquered the chaos, our hope is in you. As we stare at ruin and chaos all around us, the temptation is to lose hope, to despair, and to doubt you. But you are the one who created all things of nothing. You set the stars in their place and you brought Egypt to its knees. You conquered the dragon. So we are confident that out of these ashes you will bring something greater than we have ever imagined. For with you it is always darkest before the dawn. Help us patiently to await your timing. Help us to delight in your promises. And help us to praise your name. Amen.